G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. Though we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Uh, other reviews can lead to different podcasts. We, we really appreciate it if you could send a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. Joining Brian and myself in the studio, um, we're talking to Dirk Whirling, who Professor Dirk Whirling one of our uh, professors here at the Royal Vet College. Um, he approached us uh, a, a while ago, but unfortunately there's been uh, quite a lot of time, uh, quite a lot of uh, schedule um, compliance difficulties, um, which made that we only be able to uh, to record this sort of today, but something we want to get to you for um, over, over a year in, in reality. So, uh, so um, I'll tell, no, no further ado, um, here's the conversation we had with Professor Dirk Worthing. Thank you, Professor Dirk Whirling, for, for joining us here today, um, uh, and back in the studio. And uh, and you, uh, you you approached us, which is which is awesome to talk about the the, the microbiome and uh, and its importance, um, not only in veterinary species but but also in in us. So so maybe I could ask you uh, maybe first to try and um, maybe explain what the microbiome is, yeah. please, sir. So the microbiome is really something which we have picked up in the research in the last couple of years but actually is something you have in you from your birth on it is the composition of all the little bacteria and protozoa you have in your gut or more precise on all mucosal surfaces and if you think about the numbers we have about hundreds of trillions of mycobacteria in our body uh, in a human body, we have 150 times the genome, the human genome composition in our gut. So you can actually say we have more DNA in our gut than we have in our body. And over the last couple of years, we have picked up on that quite substantially. And it started off with realizing that the way our microbiome develops after birth has a massive impact on what's called the education of the immune system in a way that our immune system is able to differentiate between antigens which makes us ill, so foreign particles which makes us ill, as well as foreign particles, food particles, which are good for us. So people started to realize that the whole issue of foodborne allergens um, may actually depend on how allergens are processed within our gut system and how that results in the education of the immune system to either tolerate them and not respond or to be aggravated by them and to respond. Okay, and so this education of the gut, does it matter what species you are like the length of time that you're susceptible to 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 change or this information yes um so what is really quite interesting is that all of us are more or less born sterile so the the cultivation of our gut microbiome or mucosal surface microbiome happens after birth so we know exactly what microbacteria or microorganism we pick up from our birth environment and normally it's whatever is present in the vaginal area of the mother um, the anal area of the mother or the teats of 
the breast of the mother. So this is our first colonization of the gut. And interestingly, in a lot of cases, these are exactly those bacteria which we need to digest colostrum, so the first milk we get. So trials in humans have clearly shown that the microbiome of a newborn is very different if this newborn is um, born via the normal cervical path or whether it's born via, via cesarean, whether it gets breastfed afterwards or whether it gets formula afterwards. So you can actually pinpoint on how the composition of the microbiome in the gut is affected by our environment. And initially, this phase of colonization is in a way that we have first a very limited variety of microorganism, but maybe lots of one specific strain. And then by the time we get older and older, um, in humans sort of from three months on, um, our microbiome may be more diverse, but it may also change less. So actually there's now the idea that once we're adults, the microbiome is fairly fixed and is not really changing dramatically depending on the food we're eating. And this has all a lot of consequences of what we can actually do with the microbiome. And we just had last week a seminar from Dr. Lindsay Hall, who from the Quadrum Institute, who presented over the summer at the Royal Society the Guardian of the Gut exhibition. And her data on feeding newborns with specific probiotics were absolutely amazing to show how the impact of these probiotics is on the immune system, therefore also on the growth of the babies. And I think this is something which we in veterinary medicine are not doing yet enough. Um, it involves a lot of technical expertise, so you need to do microbiome analysis. But I think that over the next years to come, we're going to see big changes happening there. Specifically, if you think about how we have to reduce our antimicrobial usage in not only food-producing animals, but also companion animals. So we have to think in terms of treatment as us, as a concept of one big person who has lots of little things inside and we need to keep these little things inside in, 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 in our mind when we start treating the person. So probably the approaches we will develop are far more holistic compared to what we're currently doing. And this is really emphasized by um, new studies showing that there's a gut-brain immune system axis. So the gut directly interacts with the brain and both of these organs interact with the immune system. The immune system interacts with the gut, the immune system interacts with the brain. So there's a lot of interaction going on between different systems within our body and that's what we need to pick up on. And so you were saying before when the microbes were, were, were clays that say that the almost the microbiome that we have informs the body of, of what it what it needs. So how how do they work that out or hypothesize that? Yes, yeah, so there's some some really nice studies done which were published a couple of weeks ago using small organisms like the fruit fly, Drosophila, and um, C. elegans, which is a, a worm where we know exactly how many neurons are there. And what actually transpired is that the 
the signals for the individuals to eat and specifically to eat certain substances is to a large part impacted on by signals coming from the bacteria acting on enterocytes or endothelial cells within the gut which then also releases directly either hormones into the bloodstream to tell us that we're hungry or to tell us that we have a craving for chocolate but more importantly and this is really a brand new discovery um, these cells have a um, nerve-like structures so they have synapses so the signal from the gut to the brain doesn't go in minutes but it goes actually in milliseconds and so because i always thought that uh, people like chocolate because of the fat content and the fat sense you know makes the makes your society centers happy so i suppose it's a version of that but maybe it's maybe actually it's the bacteria that are fancy chocolate more exactly than... and and i think you're absolutely right on that so you have bacteria in your gut who crave for something um, and therefore they give out a certain signal which means you crave for something but if you think that through then it's actually not only that the bacteria talking to you but the bacteria also supporting the existence of the whole cosmos of bacteria you have in your gut so they're impacting on each other as well meaning that the products from one bacteria may be the food of the next bacteria. So depending on what you eat, your impact on your whole microbiome. And so you said, said before about so the work that was done in in people and in, in kids about feeding them probiotics. So you did see there's a certain time period where that's going to have an effect and then after that it's kind of set. So, so does that mean that if you ingest probiotics after a certain age when your immune system and your gut bacterial microbiome is is set as it as it were then your probiotics are not necessarily useful that's um something which is really hot debated at the moment um what seems to be the case and we know that from studies we've done here at the rvc but also from colleagues in the human field is that if you probiotics in adults seems to be only present as long as you um, supply yourself with these pro probiotics so they don't really seem to colonize in a way that they're constantly there and establish your own niche so we showed in dogs that if you stop feeding probiotics four days later we couldn't identify the probiotic in the feces anymore but in in newborns especially until the gut microbiome has been established it seems that they can have a very positive effect and um, Lindsay Hall and her colleagues showing that if you feed a specific probiotic called bifidum you ha actually have a kind of immune suppressive effect on the immune system in the gut which if you think it through is exactly what you want at that type at that stage of development because otherwise you would have um, inflammation in the gut and there are clinical diseases in, in newborns where this is actually happening and there's a clear derailment of the gut microbiota linked in with that. And is that because it's a, it's a time where the body is trying to work out what self is and so it's more susceptible to um, getting its wires crossed as it were to exactly. work out what is foreign and what is itself? Exactly and it also seems to be the case that 
a lot of the damage may actually, or this is a hypothesis at the moment, that a lot of the damage is not necessarily coming through the interaction of the bacteria with the host, but through the an overshooting or derailed immune response. And the concept of that has led to the hypothesis that we can find bacteria or bacterial products which can act as immune modulators, which can reset the immune system to a normal point and therefore allowing the immune system to do its normal function rather than just going crazy. And you work with uh, or do some research with, with production animals and, and has this been looked at in, in production animals like the use of probiotics? Because I, I imagine in, not, not in necessarily this country but a number of countries in the world that uh, antibiotics are used as growth promotants and maybe this might help that? Is, is that yes. the idea? Uh, so that is really the idea. Um, so with respect to antibiotics, again, there were some very nice studies done in mice and in pigs showing that an early antibiotic usage, meaning within the first week of life in the piglets or within the first days of the newborn pups, mice pups being born, if you intervene there with early antibiotics, then it has a dramatic lifelong effect on the development of these animals. And through the negative interaction we had between these antibiotics and the microbiome, at least on the mouse side, it also had an effect on the behavior of the mouse. So we're back to the gut-brain axis, but it also has an effect on how the immune system in the gut develops in the piglets. So there are very nice data out there showing that a specific organ in the gut called the pyosha plaque, which is part of the gastrointestinal associate lymphatic tissue, develops within the 31st, 35th, the first 35 days of life. And this is really driven by the colonization of the gut with the microbiome. Um, Mick Bailey in Bristol has done some really outstanding work on that, showing how the colonization impacts on the development of the immune system in the gut. But what's more important is that um, studies done here at the RVC with Claire Woffes show actually that what you do early on in life to the calf has lifelong effects. So in a lot of cases, these calves, which had an early antibiotic intervention, developed less well. They became heifers later on in life, so it took them longer to um, get into the first estrus. And in a lot of cases, they had more other bacterial infection, and quite often the milk production as well as the time they spent of the farm was clearly reduced. So early antibacterial intervention, we know now, has a dramatic lifelong effect. And this is coming from something called epigenetics. So this is the interaction of your environment with your genome, dedicating the genome to specific genes being unwound from this double helix and being actually translated and used. And it seems that these effects persist very, very long. With, with the environment that these animals are in as well, if, if you give antibiotics to one animal, is that going to interf uh, interfere with the microbiome of the animals that it, it lives with? Um, it can do to a certain extent, and I can probably come 
back to this from another angle. So we have, uh, as far as I know, two companies here in the UK who are using actually dried feces from, from hens to colonize the guts of chicken with the appropriate microbiome from that specific area. So if you think about it, if you have an, uh, a single individual where we have antibiotic therapy or an impact on the microbiome for whatever reason, if this individual grows up in an environment where there are other um, young individuals, then yes, potentially it has an impact. If it grows up as an individual or as an individual within a big herd, then it may not have such a large impact. But coming back to the hens, um, there's currently a concept in human medicine and to a certain extent in veterinary medicine as well, where you can use sort of an own fecal therapy that you replace after certain interventions your microbiome with the microbiome you had before the intervention started. And one example where this is happening is with cancer patients where chemotherapy and all the antibiotic treatment related to that probably wipes out your whole microbiome. So the idea is that if you then come back with a seeding starter colony of the good microbiome you had beforehand, you may actually recover a lot better because your immune system recognizes these as not being dangerous. It doesn't have an overshooting response. They can establish better because their niches are there and therefore you feel better and therefore potentially may recover better. Have they have they looked at whether those um, sort of fecal transplants actually stick? Have they said have they fed them to people and then tried to have a look? Because you said four days after a probiotic, you can't actually measure um, or those bacteria yeah. that you gave. But can, have they actually shown that these bacteria that you feed back to them stick? Yeah, and they seem to stick, and that goes back to the epigenetics, because they are targeting exactly the genes which were switched on before. Yeah, they, there's this constant interaction between the microbiome and our own genome, mm. and therefore they seem to stick around a lot easier. And you were saying as well about the obviously the trillions of bacteria that we have in our in our guts. But when they do like fecal transplants, are they more focusing on the the the, the clonic bacteria, or how do we know what's in the different parts of the of the gut, or, yeah. d- or does it not matter? No, what we know is that we have within different compartments of our gut, so small intestine, large intestine, rectum, we have a different bacterial composition. Now, what we don't know yet completely, but I think it's very likely that this happens, is that while your bacteria migrate through the small intestine into the large intestine and so on, it changes to the best possible bacterial composition for that individual at a given time point. And I think in respect to that, um, what was noted just a couple of weeks ago was actually that our appendix seemed to play not only a very important role in being a reservoir for immune cells, but it seems to be also a reservoir for those bacteria which we have in our intestine. So it's like a like a bank we can go back on and have a new colonization if there's a deficit in something. So I think, coming back to your question, um, I think, yes, of course, we will select for those bacteria or bacterial families where we know they have a positive effect. Um, And hopefully then, by the way we can apply them, 
we can either have a normal oral application and reseed everything through the normal route, or maybe even give it to specific compartments in the intestine to to have a treatment there. And with this, with the, with the role of the microbiome in that neuroendocrine response, has anyone looked as as well as the other infections? So, so not um, not the necessarily gastrointestinal issues, but maybe urinary tract infections or or other like mycoplasma or other like respiratory infections that are that are chronic. <coughs> So what seems to be the case really is um, it comes from two angles. So on one side we have what's called the common um, mucosal system. So the immune system underlying the mucosal surfaces has a very strong connection throughout the body. And that happens through priming of T cells and B cells, which are then migrating to other mucosal areas within the body. So to put it in hard terms, what happens on your nasal mucosal surfaces in immunological context is very similar to what happens in your intestinal mucosal surface. So what people showed is that if your gastrointestinal microbiome is what you need in terms of having a low responsive immune system, you actually have also a better mucosal immune response in the respiratory tract. Or, put it in other words, when you have an antibacterial intervention, either systemic or orally, it doesn't really matter. It affects everything on all mucosal surfaces. Now, that sounds like damning antibacterial treatment, which of course is not the case, um, but it opens up ev- new avenues where we can think about how we can we impact potentially on the respiratory tract by doing something to the intestine or the gut. Perhaps, I suppose as, as, as far as where I've come across this before, the faecal transplants in ICU patients in, in, in people that are, that are very unwell and have multi-drug resistant problems and yes. they and they started exactly. to do this to, to because no antibiotics will work, but exactly. actually the, the colonization of uh, their normal guts or, or from that environment, so whether it's a sibling or a partner yes. you know, that, that they get the fecal transplant from, yeah. actually has been shown to get them to recover from this, yes. which is quite fascinating. It is, it is really fascinating, and um, what seems to transpire more and more is that actually by impacting on the microbiome, we can enhance how antibacterial treatment or vaccination can work. Yeah, so by, by targeting the right microbiome, you can be sure that what you do to the, to the individual may actually run in a perfect environment so that you can end up with using less but having a better effect. And, and I think this is really where the excitement in, for me comes from at the moment, that we have to take all these aspects now into account. And specifically in the human system, what transpires is that what we do to the gut, as I said, has also an impact on the brain. Now, we all know that if we have good food, we just feel better. And this is coming from the interaction and the hormones being released, um, acting in our brain. But you can take that further. And there's currently a lot of trials going on looking at how we can impact potentially 
on mood changes such as depression or cognitive impairments such as Alzheimer's disease or old age-related dementia by impacting on the gut. And I think that would be absolutely cool if one could achieve that, to impact on, on how we feel by doing something to the gut rather than having to use inhibitors for specific hormones to not do their job. Imagine it gets very complicated very Absolutely. quickly. So, so where and I also think that we're just seeing the tip of what potential is there in the system. But that's where I think the fascination lies, that we're suddenly opening up this, this so far unknown black box and realise what potential there is to treat different conditions by impacting on something we never thought about beforehand. And so there's definitely uh, a lot that we can say for, for people if they know that they're going to have um, chemotherapy or, or I suppose you wouldn't know necessarily you're going to be in an ICU, but there might be certain times that you might know that you could self-populate, you know, you could get this uh, you know, fecal transplant of your, of your own. But where do you see... Um, it in the future more with 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 say sort of production animals where do you think it's going to potentially help or yeah. and, and it might be unknown but where 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 do you think small changes might actually be shown to improve i think if we can ensure that we have fairly early on in life of these production animals a stable microbiome which has educated our the immune system correctly then i think that these um, animals are potentially more resistant, genetically resistant, well, that's a bit far, more resistant to um, the classical newborn diseases such as coronavirus infection, rotavirus infection, or the whole complex of respiratory diseases happening in calves and piglets sort of around week three, four, five of age. So I can see that as a big impact, but I can also see that by understanding how specific bacterial composition in the gut can enforce treatment strategies being through antimicrobial usage or through vaccination, um, that we end up with treating less with better effect. And I think that's very crucial for the production animal side. Now, if you combine this with a general approach of increasing the genetic resistance to disease i think if you have these two methods running in parallel i think we can reduce quite dramatically the usage of antimicrobials in food producing animals but even more you can do the same on a companion animal level if we have animals undergoing chemotherapy their quality of life as the owner will tell you is probably not very good they vomit, they have diarrhea. Um, so here we can increase or impact on the quality of life quite dramatically through establishing of new microbiota in the gut, reseeding the gut with the microbiota. And within the RVC, we have actually people looking at this. So this Linda Matthew man who just did her PhD in this area. Um, looking at the impact on probiotics on cancer on dogs undergoing chemotherapy so i think there's a lot of impact we can have in a very short time 
Um, and I think also that we have reached a point where human medicine and veterinary medicine can work a lot more together in what we all call the One Health approach. And and uh, how do we, uh, Dirk, actually create this uh, um, a, 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 a culture from our own microbiome? Like, what, what do we what, what do we actually do in the in the lab, as it were? How, yeah. do, how do we make it? So uh, the big technical issue there is to understand what is a normal microbiome and what is a beneficial or healthy microbiome. Currently, there's a lot of sequencing approaches where we're trying to understand what bacteria or microorganisms in general are actually present in our intestine. And over the last couple of years, we have identified so many new bacterial strains um, it's just unbelievable what's coming out of there. And this is coming through using all these high-throughput sequencing technologies we're all picking up on. So I think once we know what qualifies as a healthy, um, supportive microbiome, then we have to think about, okay, how can we use that information to extract those bacteria where we know they have a beneficial effect and provide them then back into the individual to treat certain conditions. And I suppose this is a better way because I know certain certain production animals who produce like disease-free animals or trying to create them in isolation, and but obviously then they'll be still as susceptible as any other yes. sort of patient. So I suppose that's one way to try and exactly. reduce antibiotic resistance. But yes. this way, would be we, the idea would be that we would um, it would have less of a negative effect on yes. production animals. Exactly. So the idea really behind that is that we can tackle our current issues with farm animal um, from multiple ways. So we can try and develop new vaccines, we can try and improve the genetic resilience of, of the animals by um, changing our breeding strategies, plus we can try to impact on individual animals or on a whole herd by optimizing their microbiome by understanding on what's a beneficial microbiome. But I think also what is what I find absolutely amazing is that we have these old phrases such as to go through the heart, you need to go through the stomach. Um, we actually can hypothesize now why these old phrases are actually working. Because if you think about it, if you eat food and feel happy, then your body feels happy. And therefore, that happiness is then automatically correlated in the brain with the person who cooked you the food. So, you know, there could be really something in there in these phrases. But, but also saying that the bacteria's involvement in that, which yes. is not, which, which is which is another which is another level. But then again, yes. if they have more genetic uh, or more DNA than than we do by yeah. mass, then that's quite interesting yeah. in itself. Well, you know, we have this whole concept of gut feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Now. We all say that's gut feeling, but in fact, what we actually may experience is some signals coming from the microbiome being picked up by our brain, which gives us that feeling of, yeah, that's great, or no, that's not so good. So it could really be that there's a lot more behind this gut feeling than the, when we thought about so far. So that would would this help as well with the understanding of a bit more of the, the pathogenesis or some of these pathological bacteria, like what? what would make them different? Like we might be able to identify them easier, I suppose. Yeah, so we know already from um, some trials that um, 
when you compare, for example, pigs being ra- raised outdoors to pigs being raised indoors, they have very different microbiome. So the one being raised outdoors have actually less diversity in the gut, but most of the microbiome is in the lumen of the gut, so not really between the villi. Whereas in the pigs being raised indoors, they had more what we would call negative bacteria such as E. coli and so, which can dig between the villi of the intestine. Um, so there were there's clear signs that again the environment interacts with the microbiome, and therefore we can impact on the health. And and is there are there any studies looking at the the way that those pigs grow with without antibiotics in in the indoors or outdoors or is that just too complicated um no they're not yet or at least i'm not aware of them but i think sooner or later this will come um because i think the field is just picking up on this i mean if you type in the term microbiome into any of these search engines at the moment and look back over the last couple of years you will see that they are exponentially increasing so the knowledge gain we currently have is quite dramatic and i really hope that because it is fairly fairly easy to do that we will have a fast impact on all these kind of researches on how we can treat clinical conditions how we can increase the um, quality of life of farmed animals as well as companion animals in certain conditions, but also how we can impact on on our quality of life through that. And just sort of as a side story, there were articles already published showing that um, dogs in families have very... You can find overlaps in the microbiome between the humans and the dogs. So... Uh, there is more in this, this is a family dog, than potentially we, have, we may have thought so far. In it, I, I was actually thinking about asking that because I know that in certain cultures, like the animals were living under under the house where they kept pigs or chickens. And would that be, do we know whether that would be a negative thing or a, or a positive thing for, for us? Um, that is a really good question. And I don't think anyone has looked at that yet. Mm. Um so yeah, there's another area. So why don't we write a grand application? <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. Um, well, thank you very much for your time today, Dirk. I think it's really uh, um, very interesting. I'd probably, like with all good uh, research questions, or all good research, creates more questions than, than answers and not knowing where to go. I think a lot of my uh, um, uh, challenge in, in thinking about research questions is more to keep it simple. And the problem yeah. is this is it gets quite big quite quickly, this. I've, I think you're absolutely right. And I think um, the whole notion that we seem to have a gut-brain-immune-system axis um, just calls for research proposals which are multidisciplinary and can target different organ systems or different um, reactive circles within a host from from different angles. So I think it will not be enough um, soon to just look at the immune response or just look at how the gut reacts to certain treatment, but really think about, you know, okay, what happens on all other areas. But 
you can also turn this around and this is work done in mice where they already shown that stimulation of nerve endings in the gut was able to increase hormones which we normally associate with positive feedbacks now if you think this in the context of for example doing surgery yeah if you can impact on the healing process by releasing more positive hormones as well as impacting on the immune system of doing its function better by just stimulating nerve endings in the in the gut or in whatever tissue you're working with which has a microbiome um then you know that's a win-win for everyone absolutely absolutely um mind-boggling uh, stuff and and uh, in the in what you uh, what you heard sort of recently in the, the lecture that you attended where, where is the the future in in people where were they uh, focusing or is it just ev- everywhere um so i think there's there's clear indications that people are using our understanding of the microbiome to deal with diseases or conditions related to um, let's call it a malfunction of the brain in the widest sense whether it's um, mood orientated dysfunctions or memory dysfunctions if we can improve on how the brain works through working on the gut i think that would be great but at the same time you could think about improving the neonatal survival rate by having the right probiotic at the right time um so that would go back into i would say specifically low and medium income countries so you would reduce um neonatal death rates which then also has an impact on how the families feel so this you know this is the sky is the limit i would say at the moment is it's very exciting times and just take take back sort of one step as well about the the use of sort of antibiotics as as well. Do you think in in general is it hard to gauge that the that in the world we're we're going to get restrictions at some point on our antimicrobial use, both commercially or in production animals and and in in uh, um, dogs and cats? I think so. Yes, I don't think that we will ever get rid of antibiotic usage. Um, in a way that we we st- we still have infectious diseases affecting single or individual animals. Um, what would be nice to do would having to having alternatives to reduce the antibiotic usage as we had it so far as food additives um, by impacting on the microbiome or on the gut microbiome and keep the animals healthier that way now how fast that will happen i don't know i just hope it will happen very fast because we're running out of of ideas and other solutions at the moment but i imagine that if uh by looking after the microbiome that actually you know does does its job and doesn't necessarily interfere with production or makes the animals healthier and and you know production is the same then it would be wiser to do that which has to be more affordable and world friendly than using antibiotics yeah and i think that's a way where the industry affecting those animals which have only one stomach um is really going to if you think about the dairy industry or the feedlot industry where you have cows 
with four stomach and you have the big room and with all the so far yet undiscovered microbiome i think this this is going to be a bit more complicated but in general um animal production has picked up on changing the microbiome and analyzing the microbiome already and people are getting more and more interested in finding food additives which help the preservation or the development of what we currently would assume is a healthy microbiome in the gut. And there's um, actually a lot of money currently invested through EU research grant in exactly these topics, finding alternatives to antimicrobial usage by enhancing microbiome composition. It's very fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Do you think there's anything that we uh, we missed of, of this? Uh, oh, I think we should do an update in a year's time or so. Let's do that. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll book it in. So thank you so much for your You're time welcome. today. Thanks again for listening to the RBC Research Podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or other friends. We'll place uh, any show notes on the RBC pages. So just type in RBC Research Podcast and search engine and should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye